And I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians. We are back in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 2, and this morning we're looking at verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the title of the message this morning is Selfless, Gracious Forgiveness. Selfless, Gracious Forgiveness. I'll go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 5, which says this. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote, so that I might know your proven character, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you graciously forgive anything, I graciously forgive also. For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I have graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." Well, as we come back into 2 Corinthians, it's important, as we've said uh, in weeks past, that you have a context for what's going on. And so without really going into too much detail and reviewing a lot of the context we've gone before, I do want to ask some questions of you to see where we're at and maybe help those who haven't been with us. Um, so my, I've got some questions I just wanted to ask. Uh, review questions, but when did, there's no books, no prizes, sorry about that, but we're just, we're just studying the Bible. So um, <laughs> when did Paul first visit the Corinthians? Does uh, Paul visit the Corinthians? We're in 2 Corinthians. When was his first visit? Anybody remember? You don't have to give me the year. So remember his first missionary journey, he didn't go there. He would just stay closer to Israel. Second missionary journey, it was about AD 51, he visited the Corinthians. How long was he there? How long did he visit them on his first visit as he helped bring the gospel and establish the church there? Do you remember how long he was there? Yes. One year? A year and a half. So we'll give you a half point on that. So um, a year and a half he was there. And then how many letters did Paul write to them in between his first visit and his second visit? So I heard one, I heard two. So it was actually, uh, sorry, uh, it was three. Um, so he, this is his fourth letter to them. We only have two of them. We've talked about this, but um, it's good that we're reviewing. So uh, remember in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul wrote, he said, I wrote in my letter, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they had misunderstood him. They thought he meant anybody who was immoral. And he said, no, within the church. So he clarified that. But we learned in the first letter that we have that he had written to them before. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians. And then we have a letter that we don't have called the severe letter or sometimes the sorrowful letter. And, and that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. But he wrote to them a harsh letter calling them to repentance. We don't have that as well. Those, 
two that we don't have are not canonical books, they're not scriptures, um, but the, the, these two that we have are scripture, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, and we talked about that last time we were together and the fact that not everything that every apostle wrote was always scripture, but there were certain letters that they knew that were inspired and that the church recognized. How many times did Paul visit them in between his first visit and this letter? Once. He went and visited them, and it was a painful visit. It didn't go well. It was a briefer visit than he had wanted it to be. We know this from what he wrote in 1 Corinthians as, as well as in 2 Corinthians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, take a look if you have Bibles over to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. I'm going to read the ESV. He said, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Remember in that section, he's explaining why his plans changed. And in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, he actually tells them he's going to visit them, and he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. So there's a point to all this. where It's okay that you're not getting any answers right, but we're building, we're building, we're getting our memories back, just the context here. So we know that it was a painful visit. Why was it painful? Don't everybody raise your hand at once. Yes, Finn Markster. So one possible scenario is somebody had a public verbal assault against Paul, and I think that's what happened. But what we do know is that, um, uh, and, 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 and actually I'm going to save that because we're going to get into some of those details in this passage this morning. But... Um, there was uh, something that was very painful. How many people caused the pain? So I heard it. One. We know that, again, from our text this morning, and we'll see that. There was one in particular, but we also know from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 12, where he refers to this, he says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. So there was one who suffered, and there was one who did the wrong. We think Paul's the one who suffered the wrong, and that he's just writing about this. He says, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So because it was public, though, and again, we'll see that in our text this morning, there was a large group of them that was swayed. Even the majority of them um, if the scenario was that Paul was verbally attacked by someone, um, then, then the majority of them no, didn't stand up for him. Didn't. Paul had some people that were for him. They were of Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 1. But it seemed like this person who had attacked Paul had a lot of support from the, the majority or from a large portion of them. Um, and so... When, and before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he had written the severe letter, they had repented. And Paul knew that when he wrote 2 Corinthians. How do we know that they repented? Who told Paul? Titus. Yes, we got one. Um, <laughs> Titus. So, 
Paul had sent Titus to them, probably with the severe letter. They read it. Titus came back, and Paul couldn't wait. He went to Troas. Titus wasn't there. He went on to Macedonia, and while he was in Macedonia, he met up with Titus. And the reason we know that is also from 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 7. He says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fe- without fears within. But God, who comforts the humbled, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Titus came back before he wrote this letter and reported to Paul that they longed for Paul, they were mourning or sad, presumably about what had happened during the painful visit. Um, They were zealous for him, they were for him, they were now like, we love Paul, and uh, they rejoiced, Paul rejoiced because of that. So that's what we know. And a possible scenario that fits all those facts is that Yeah, there were false teachers mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11 who uh, attacked Paul verbally. That was common, and they taught something different than him. Um, But we know that um, Paul showed up in uh, in Corinth for a visit that went wrong. And we we can put together that there was an, uh, an individual who wronged most likely Paul. And that, and that it was probably a public verbal attack on Paul that caused him to leave really saddened. Um, Paul leaves, but rather than visit again, he writes the severe letter or the sorrowful letter, and then he sends Titus and meets up with Titus and hears a good report. So now as we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we've got that context in mind. Um, and he's now urging them to forgive that individual. The church in Corinth was pretty good at discipline, but they weren't so good at restoration. And so this was a reminder for them, an encouragement for them, an admonishment for them to really embrace and forgive this person. And this is practical for us because there are relationships that we have where we have been offended. And do we really reconcile completely? Do we practice gracious forgiveness. That was one of the things that I came to in this passage as I was studying it in the LSB, which is what I'm preaching from. uh, It it translates the word forgiveness that most versions use to gracious forgiveness. Why do they use the word gracious there? And we'll find that out as well. But I couldn't help thinking about a scenario that happened in recent history here in the United States. I'll share with you some of the details about an event where we had a public display of really amazing forgiveness. Because on the night of September 6, 2018, there was a 26-year-old accountant named Botham Jean, Botham, Botham Jean, who was murdered in Dallas, Texas. You may remember that an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger mistakenly entered the wrong apartment. She lived on the third floor. He lived on the fourth floor in a building that was identical layout on each floor. And she had driven home, and instead of parking on the third floor of the parking structure, she ended up parking on the fourth floor thinking she was on the third. So when she walked down the hallway to what she thought was her apartment, it was really his apartment. And the door was uh, unlocked, and she went in thinking that there was an intruder inside her apartment. 
And the, the Botham who was there was uh, in his apartment, actually, watching television, eating ice cream. And uh, she ended up breaking police protocol of calling for more backup. Um, she confronted him, thinking he was an intruder. She shot him, and he died. And on October 2nd, 2019, she was found guilty of murder, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The 10 was the minimum sentence, I think 20-something, 20 28 was the, the, it could have been the harshest sentence. And during that sentence hearing, Botham's mother was very emotional and shared that some of Geiger's text messages and social media posts were, in her estimation, both racist and offensive. Botham's father said that he forgave Geiger, but he wanted a stiffer sentence than what she got. But what really stood out in this tragic event was what Botham's brother said and did in that hearing, in that sentencing hearing. I've summarized, but these are his own words. Here he says, I don't want to say for the hundredth time how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I hope you go to God with all the guilt, all the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done some things in the past we were not supposed to. If you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. Again, I'm speaking for myself, and not even on behalf of my family, but I love you, just like anyone else, and I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that is exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing. Again, I love you, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And he paused, and Brant, Bo's brother Brant, looked at the judge and said, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? There was an eight second pause from the judge, during which Brandt said, please, again. The judge responded, yes. For almost 60 seconds in front of a crowded courtroom, you can hear people crying, one person even wailing, as the victim's 18-year-old brother hugged the woman who murdered his 26-year-old older brother. While they were hugging, they were whispering kind words to one another, he later said. You couldn't hear what they were saying, but this picture, if you've seen it, you know. If you haven't, it's an amazing thing to behold. Um, it, it looked like genuine repentance and gracious forgiveness as much as I've ever seen 
in, in my lifetime. He was later interviewed, and in response to one of the questions, he responded, I know that every time God, every time I ask God for forgiveness, he forgives me. So who am I not to forgive someone who asks? His forgiveness wasn't perfect forgiveness, but it's a really good example of gracious forgiveness. He later revealed that, and, and he's tried to stay away from this. He hasn't been so much in the media, and he also, even a week after, he hadn't watched any of the videos of the courtroom. But in one interview, he revealed that he struggled with bitterness in his heart for a year because it was a year between the event and the trial. But when he heard her apologize, he knew he had to forgive her. And um, this morning, as we come to this passage and we look at this difficult situation that Paul went through, uh, we see key elements, four key elements that are essential for selfless, gracious forgiveness. So if we want to forgive like God wants us to forgive, we need to have these four elements, and that's what we're looking at this morning. I call them the four C's of gracious forgiveness. It's caring, complete forgiveness, confirming, and careful forgiveness. The first one is caring forgiveness. Gracious forgiveness is caring forgiveness, verses 5 through 7. Take a look at this text carefully with me. See in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Now, these words bleed selflessness. If Paul indeed was the one who's offended, he doesn't mention himself at all. In fact, he says it wasn't him who was offended. And that's one of the reasons we think he was offended, because he put so much emphasis on, like, I wasn't offended. Um, but, um, and this is one of the keys. If you really want to forgive someone, you have to try and remove yourself from the situation and not think about your injury, but you have to think about what's best for this person, almost like an objective party would, uh, like God would. What's best? I want what's best for them in this situation. That's going to help your decision-making. Do you confront or do you not confront? Do you overlook with love or do you confront awkwardly as it might be in order to try and help them? And the answer to that question is, what would be best for them? I'm not thinking about myself. You really want to confront them for yourself? Probably not a good time to do it. So as we think about this gracious forgiveness, um, we see a real example here. And the deeper you look at the grammar, that's right, the grammar of these verses, the more we learn about the details of what must have gone on. So at the risk of going back to 10th grade with you, I'm going to, I'm going to try and break apart some of these words to help us get a better picture of really what's going on. Um, because there's something that we learn from the verbs uh, in this passage, especially the first verb, caused sorrow, in verse 5. In English, when we use different words uh, that say the same thing, and, it, and it, we, we do it when we change tenses. So if I say, I saw, uh, it's the 
past tense. If I said, I see, it's the present tense. If I say, I have seen, it's the perfect tense. Right, perfect. Okay, so, so and we, we have the past perfect and the present perfect and, you know. So anyways, but it was, so we'll stick with the perfect. So, but we also, we change pronouns with different verbs. First person, second person, third person. If I say, I have seen, you have seen, he has seen. That's first person, second person, third person. Third person is he has seen. So as we think about that, when you, when you look at verbs in the Greek, just like many other languages like Spanish and so forth, the verb actually contains more information than, than ours in English. In English, they pretty much tell you the tense, whether it's past tense, present tense, perfect tense, but they use different endings and different verbs and the same root in Greek, and you can tell a lot about what's going on here. And in, in this case, the verb that's translated caused sorrow is perfect. It's an active indicative, and it's the third person singular. In other words, he, it's clear he's talking about an individual, he has, the perfect tense, he has caused sorrow. So it's indicative. And if you look at the same verse, just bear with me here, look at verse 5, but if any, the word any there is a pronoun, and it is masculine. So throughout here, we use masculine pronouns. So there's a guy here who has caused sorrow, all right? And he's caused sorrow to me, but in some degree, that word there is a difficult, it literally means part or in part or from part. And it's saying that in some measure, or not to put it too severely, or you know, in some, to some degree, every one of you has been affected by this. Again, listen to uh, another translation. I like the way the NIV actually translates this verse, 2 Corinthians 2.5. It says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent not to put it too severely. I don't want to exaggerate this. I don't want to say that you're all distraught, but to some measure, you've all been affected by this, and it's this one individual. Do you see how just by looking more closely at this word, we can learn a lot about what must have happened, that it was one individual, that it was a guy, and that there was one person who was offended, but it affected the whole group, so it must have been public because they must have all known about it somehow. We see from the language a lot here, and this is why we can observe that um, uh, also that, uh, as I mentioned before, Paul emphasizes he has not caused sorrow to me or he's not offended me. He's trying to remove himself. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, sufficient for such a one. Now, again, this is a pronoun here the word one there, and it's, 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 a, it's, it's saying this one, this one guy. What's been, his punishment already has been sufficient. The word punishment, this word is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. But in other ancient literature and in the context here, it seems clear that this was uh, used as a disciplinary act. Now, discipline can be a very loving thing. And it seems like this church had disciplined this guy out for what he did to whoever it was, presumably Paul. 
And that's part of what the severe letter must have been about. Paul wrote this letter wanting to see if they would actually discipline somebody out for what he did wrongly to Paul. And he wrote that severe letter. But we also see from our verses that this guy had obviously repented because now Paul is calling them to forgive him, which is why in verse 7, Paul's encouraging them to be gracious towards him. And he doesn't use a common word for forgiveness in verse 7. The most common word for forgiveness used 159 times in the New Testament, 28 of them pronounced, uh, uh, translated as directly forgive. Um, but that word is not used here. It's used like in Luke 17, 3, for example. But the word translated forgive here is only used nine times in the New Testament, only by Paul. It's found in five verses. And three of those examples, three of those verses are in 2 Corinthians. And the word is, is, we get the word grace from it. Charis is the root. And so we have the word grace. And he's saying, be gracious to him. But the context demands that it's forgiveness. And so that's why many translations translate this word as forgive. And most likely your Bible says forgive. But the LSB puts there graciously forgive because there is an emphasis on the word grace in your forgiveness with the word choice that he uses here. <clears throat> so when we see that and we read this and we say in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So not everybody agreed with the discipline, but the majority of them did, okay? So on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up. It's a fantastic word. It's the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says the devil uh, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion wanting to devour. It's that word devour. That this guy might not be devoured by excessive sorrow. So how difficult is it to remove yourself from the offense whether Paul was or wasn't the one who was offended, it's clear that he's admonishing them to really embrace the person who had offended all of them and one person in particular. And, and before we answer that question, let's, let's, let's move on because I, I, just, I, I think really getting into the details of this is going to help us. We've seen that gracious forgiving is caring. And by that, mean, by that I mean you care more for the offender than you do for yourself, right? Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. So Paul, bleeding through this verse, is care for the offender who's now repented, removing himself as much as possible from the situation. Gracious forgiveness is caring, and you cannot forgive graciously unless you're more concerned about the offender than yourself. A second key component of gracious forgiveness is gracious forgiveness is complete. Take a look at verse 8. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. Perhaps one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. I love this word reaffirm. It's the only time it's found in the New Testament. And also, 
there's emphasis on this word, I encourage you. You may not see it in your translation, but back in verse 7, take a look at verse 7. Paul told them that they not only needed to graciously forgive, but to comfort him. The word comfort, parakaleo, we get the word paraclete from it. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete or our comforter. And the word means literally para, to come alongside, okay? Um, to console, to encourage. And he uses the same word in verse eight. He says, I want you to encourage this guy. Now, in, sorry, in verse seven, he uses, to, I want you to comfort him or encourage him. In verse eight, I, same word, encourage you. I'm coming alongside of you right now. Um, and uh, I'm urging you, I'm appealing to you. What is he urging them? What is he coming alongside of them, trying to help them, trying to console them, trying to comfort them, trying to encourage them to do what? To reaffirm their love. That word reaffirm means validate, make it legally binding, show that it's real. I think back to the illustration with Brant John and his forgiveness of Amy, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Geiger, what's her name, Ash? Uh, sorry? Amber, thank you. Just testing, seeing who's listening. Um, uh, Brent, John hugged the woman who murdered his brother, and later he was asked why he hugged her. And these are his words, quote, the words, they mean something, but I felt like it was not enough. That was just my way of letting her know that I truly forgive her. I just felt like I had to get that point across. So in that case, his words communicated that he forgave her, but his hug verified it, ratified it, affirmed it, confirmed it. That's what this word means, reaffirm. They use the word reaffirm because they obviously loved him at one point. Now affirm it again to him. That's a picture of, of, that goes beyond forgiveness. This is why I, I, I talk about this as complete forgiveness because it doesn't just promise that you won't bring it up again. Sometimes I think we have this idea that we can forgive someone and we could say, I forgive you, I just don't ever want to spend time with you again. And that somehow that is forgiveness. And while it may qualify as a textbook definition of forgiveness, which is to promise not to remember or to bury the offense or literally to separate the offense from, from you, um, if, if, that is, if, that's, if that fulfills the, it's really not gracious forgiveness. Gracious forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that Paul admonishes, encourages, come along, comes alongside the Corinthians to put in practice Gracious forgiveness is complete in the sense that it not only grants forgiveness, but it moves beyond that, and it actually attempts to ratify it, to verify it, to reaffirm your love for that person. It is not complete until it's validated. Let's pause for a sec. What does that look like? Is that possible? What are your questions? 
Yes. Mm -hmm. The question is that, which is really a statement, which which I love, darling. Thank you for for bringing that up. So, um, (laughs) crickets this morning. So, um, uh, it was a statement. Sorry, the you're gonna have to forgive me later for this. But um, um, that person has repented. The question is, what if they haven't repented? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, obviously, we, we don't just unilaterally and unconditionally forgive people who don't repent because, um, uh, and, and, and that is if we know that they're not repentant, because uh, how awkward is that? You walk up to somebody and you say, by the way, I forgive you for what you did, and they're like, what are you talking about? You're the one who offended me. They have no acknowledgement of their own sin. And therefore, you really can't forgive them. Um, and love covers over a multitude of sins. So you can, you don't confront everybody that, that actually sins against you. You can cover it over with love, and you do that, whatever's best for them. But uh, Luke 17.3 is really good to help us understand the importance of granting forgiveness. Because in Luke 17.3, you can turn there if you want. Uh, Luke 17, 3 says, And if he sins against you, oh, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive you. Forgive him. Luke 17, 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The word saying there is there in the original. And this is a difficult passage because it is, uh, now if he, obviously, there's such a thing as insincere repentance, right? And if you know that it's not sincere, because they say, well, the Bible says, Luke 17, 4, I repent, I say it, now you have to forgive me, I repent, you know, and they say it in such a demeaning way that you realize this is clearly not genuine repentance, you, 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 don't, you don't necessarily have to forgive in the sense that you can withhold forgiveness from somebody who's not repentant. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we have steps of church discipline that we, um, when somebody is, is sinning in the church and they're not repentant, we don't just go up to them and say, hey, listen, I know that you stole money out of the offering, but we all forgive you and we're not gonna say anything or do anything about it. A church that doesn't deal with sin is a church that's in trouble. So we don't just forgive if the person is not repentant at all. We confront in love, they repent. If we're wondering, I wonder if their repentance was genuine or not. I'm not sure. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes all things. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. And if love's keeping no record of wrongs, I mean, you're basically saying, well, they said they repent, I'm not sure. And Luke 17, 3 puts the nail on the coffin for us. It says, if they say, I repent, forgive him, forgive them. It's not really our job to judge sincerity. It's our job to forgive. If you know they're insincere, it's a different story. But if you don't know, you give the benefit of the doubt and you forgive, you bury it. But Paul's going beyond forgiveness. 
He's talking about reaffirming your love. He's talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-time act that should be done as quickly as possible, Uh, not uh, in a way that is insincere or just like, yeah, I forgive you, you know, but but it shouldn't, you shouldn't wait on it. As, 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 as soon as, as would be um, a, a, an expected time to be able to grant the forgiveness, you should be willing always to grant forgiveness. And if they say they're repentant, you should be willing to say, I will not bring this up to you or to anyone else again in a way that will make you smell the sin and the stink of the sin that you meted out against me. We may talk about this years from now, but it will always be in a positive light. It'll be, it'll be something like, remember that conflict we had so many years ago? I'm so glad we're past that and we have sweet fellowship now. I'm not bringing it up at all in a way to make you feel the sting of sin. So that's, but that's forgiveness. But to go beyond that is to reconcile. The word reconcile actually the Greek word literally means to exchange. It's used in Romans chapter 5 uh, with God reconciling us to himself. Uh, we're instructed to reconcile with one another, and that word means to exchange. It's you exchange a bad relationship for a good relationship. And so he's, and part of that is really there's a picture of it here reaffirm your love for him. Okay. So we've seen that gracious forgiveness is caring and it is complete. It's incomplete without that reaffirmation. But a third component of gracious forgiveness is it is confirming. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 9, For to this end I also wrote, so that I might know your proven character, whether you are obedient in all things. Again, one of the difficulties of 2 Corinthians is that we're trying to put together from the whole book what happened and what Paul's relationship with him. But this is one of those verses where he says, I wrote to you before. And we don't have a copy of this. So we know that this is a letter that we don't have, probably in the severe letter. And he's saying, hey, what's going on now is the same reason I wrote you before. Okay? I wrote you before. Um, and my, let me tell you my motivation My motivation before was that you would prove your character. Now, what did you write him in the severe letter? To discipline this individual. For the same reason, he's writing them again to prove their character to forgive him. To forgive him. Where do we find instructions in the Bible to discipline people out of the church? Matthew 18, right? I mentioned it so long ago. 1 Timothy 5. Right. Where do we find instructions in the Bible to restore people who have been disciplined? Galatians 6. It's one of the places. We're, we're quick to know the passages on disciplining them out, but we're not as familiar with the passages of, of actually restoring someone. The Galatians 6 verses 1 through 6 breaks down uh, if you hear Pastor MacArthur's sermon on it, he's got like an epic outline, which is uh, basically um, pick him up, hold him up, and build him up. Those six verses, pick him up, 
Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So that's the pick him up, the restoration, Galatians 6, 1. Galatians 6, verses 2 through 5, hold him up. Listen to this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. So bear one another's burdens. Hold this guy up. You can't just say, hey, welcome back. We're not going to you know, interact with you ever again. You have to reaffirm your love for him. You have to hold him up. Galatians 6, 6 is build him up. And it says in, in verse 6 of Galatians 6, and the one who is instructed in the word is to share in all good things with the one who instructs him. And so there's this idea of the word of God helping to strengthen this person. And that's, that's really a good outline for how to restore somebody who was kicked out of the church or disciplined by the church or even maybe not disciplined, but sinned in the church, repented, and needs to remain in fellowship. We need to reaffirm our love for them. Gracious forgiveness is caring, it's complete, and it's confirming. It confirms because it confirms who you really are. The way Paul writes this is he knew they were believers. He knew that they would do the right thing. He knew that they would discipline him out, and now he knows in this letter that they will love him. A fourth key component of gracious forgiveness is it is careful. It is careful. It's careful because Satan uses a lack of forgiveness and gracious forgiveness in the church as a wedge to destroy and divide churches. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11. But one whom you graciously forgive anything, I graciously forgive also. For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I've graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Notice a purpose statement in verse 11. Take a look at it. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul is saying here, um, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ for the purpose of that no advantage, that word advantage means to be exploited, to be defrauded, to be outwitted. Uh, it's, it's a passive verb, means that somebody has done something to you. And uh, so I just think that Paul is making it clear that we have to be careful, that if you're in a situation where you're like, I know I should forgive this person, or I have forgiven them, but I don't feel like reaffirming my love for them. You need to do that because we need to be careful. It's dangerous to harbor any kind of hesitancy when it comes to gracious forgiveness. We know Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But remember Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 as well. In Ephesians 4, 26, it's familiar. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27 says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
So you need to be careful. This is serious. We're not merely talking about promising not to bring it up again, like it's some kind of transaction that's as mundane as going to the bank and making a deposit or a withdrawal. This is actually ongoing, continuous reaffirmation. It's gracious forgiveness. It's caring because it thinks about the other person first. It's complete because it goes beyond just granting forgiveness and it goes towards reconciliation, which can be a process. It's confirming because it confirms that you really are in Christ, that you understand. Listen, of all people, Christians should be the most forgiving. Matthew 18 talks about the parable of the unmerciful servant who was, who was forgiven of a debt that he could never repay and would not forgive his fellow servant. Christians who understand the immeasurable amount of sin that we've sinned against God and that it's much greater than any amount of sin anyone could sin against us, we should be willing to forgive. And if you haven't really repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and experienced what it is to know that all of your sins in the past all of your sins presently in your life, all the sins which you've yet to commit in your lifetime, they have all been forgiven. They have all been paid for on the cross, that you are cleansed, that you are washed, that you are free, that you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave of Christ, and you have eternal life. If you don't know what that's like, it's going to be difficult for you to forgive. But if you do know what that's like, this should confirm, this should be confirmed in your actions. And it is careful. Gracious forgiveness is careful that you're not allowing something to harm you. So we have six minutes left. Questions, yes? So Yeah. Okay. So uh, the question is, what about unbelievers who are outside of the church who um, maybe are not repentant, and how should we reaffirm our love to them, and, and at what point does that play? Is that pretty much your question? What does it look like to continue to show love to them? Okay. I think it's helpful to, to differentiate four different verbs in the Scripture that talk about conflicts. There's anger. There's bitterness. There's forgiveness and there's reconciliation, okay? And sometimes we think about all that as one, but you need to, to divide those terms up. Anger should never last long, and it happens. Uh, you can have righteous anger. I personally have never experienced it, but, uh, you know, Jesus did. So um, uh, because I'm, it's all mixed in with, you know, me. So, um, but when you think about that anger, it should be brief. Uh, bitterness, we should never harbor bitterness. We should always have a, and you could also say we should have a willingness to forgive, always. The granting of forgiveness can be an act. And so we should be willing to do that. If they repent, we grant them forgiveness. If they don't, it doesn't mean that we're not willing to forgive. We should be eager to forgive, just even if they give us an olive branch, just some kind of sign, okay? With an unbeliever, you can't go through four steps of church discipline with them because they're not part of a church body. You can do the first two. You can go to them quietly, individually, Matthew 18, verse 15, just between the two of you, wanting to win them over, not to prove them wrong, but wanting to reconcile a relationship. 
and you could and and if they if they to, if you're totally missing each other and they say ah I didn't do anything wrong right you could go with one other person and you could say listen I brought this other person I know we talked about this before it didn't go well we were missing each other I might be getting this wrong I asked them to come I haven't told them anything about our situation I just want to ask you again do you recognize how much you've offended me and that you've wronged me is it, or am I seeing this you know differently and you you know, and, and, and hopefully they'll say, yeah, well, you know, okay, you know, please forgive me. And, and so you say, I do, I forgive you. And then you have that ongoing reaffirming your love for them. I think um, when they're an unbeliever and they're not repentant, they're not our enemies, okay? They are lost and they need the Lord. So we pray for them, we witness to them. The difficulty comes in, how closely do we fellowship with them? How closely, and I think that you need to express your love into them, to them in such a way that they know it's genuine without putting yourself in a position where people who see you together associate you with their behavior. So those times together become evangelistic. All right? And that can happen at Thanksgiving. doesn't mean you, do, you have to like, I can't go because they're going to be there. But it does mean uh, I don't feel like going because I know it's going to be awkward, but I want to go because I want to minister Christ's love to them. And again, you, to help you make those decisions, trying to remove yourself from the situation and the offense and the hurt that you feel. One more question. All right. Oh, yes. So unbeliever, not repentant, has wronged you. Should you sue them? Oh, pursue them. I was, I'm glad I clarified that because we're about to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and talk about lawsuits. Um, and uh, should you pursue them? Uh, I, I think, again, you need to do what's best for them. And I, I think there comes a point where they know and that you've done everything you can possibly do and they just are not ready. We don't want to be the most painful people on the earth. When I was in high school, I was a knucklehead and my youth pastor knew it. And everything I missed, he would come up and say, missed you on Sunday, missed you at Bible study, missed you. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not sanctified right now. I don't want you to guilt me, right? And that was an issue in my own heart, and I'm not sure that that really helped the way he approached me. He's a good guy, and he helped in a lot of other ways, and I, I can overlook that. I'm not bitter about that. So, um, <laughs> but, but I think it's an example of we can, we can play Holy Spirit. I think one of the key is to realize that we are sinners. And I just, I just love, you read this passage again, go home this afternoon and read these verses again, and see how Paul is so intentional try to make it not about him. And I really think that's key. So yeah, be gracious. And there's a fine line between doing nothing and being proactive. So I think it's a continual struggle. All right, let's pray. Hey, thank you, Father. We are, 
we are grateful for this passage. Thank you for helping us to understand it a bit better this morning. And really, these principles are not difficult to understand, but they are difficult to apply. So use us, help us to apply them to our own lives. I know that there are people here who have situations that are painful, that are hurtful, and may we be gracious, forgiving, selfless, caring, complete in our forgiveness, confirming what you have done. We pray for those who don't know you that they would repent this day and turn and trust in you for you are our only hope and help us to be careful in this world and recognize that some things are much bigger than what they appear to be. So we pray this and commit this to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys.